Hey, deserving listeners, this episode, I am going to talk about how therapists fail their clients. I'm going to go in depth on a lot of them. It's not a super deep dive, but I'm, I'm probably going to talk for about an hour about uh, several different ways in which therapists commonly will fail their clients. It's based on a, a, this talk is based on a book that I have on my shelf here called How to Fail as Therapists, written by Bernard Swartz and John Flowers, published 2010. And I am just going to rattle through that. And this is going to be a patron-only episode. So if you want to hear this episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. When you become a patron, you get access to this episode in addition to hundreds of other deep dives in which I go into very technical matters and otherwise. So become a patron of the podcast. Do so now. All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. Thank you so much for being a patron. I have always fantasized, it's a weird fantasy, but I have always fantasized about just starting an episode, picking up a book off my shelf, and just talking about the book or talking about the content of the book. I have a very huge library of books. I have been acquiring books throughout my career and uh, as I've become uh, a podcaster, I've realized that having good source material is a very important aspect of trying to provide accurate and contemporary information. And s most good psychology information is not available on the internet yet. I'm sure it will be one day. But for whatever reason, the vast majority of good information or even accurate information in the field of psychology is not uh, on the internet or not readily accessible. And so I still rely on books and journals to provide me with accurate information. So I've been amassing this very large library. I don't know how many books there are, but uh, actually let me, let me do a short count here. Almost 1,500. I have almost 1,500 books and journals in my office right now. I can look at all of them right, right over my shoulder here. And I, whenever I do an episode of, of this podcast that involves anything related to psychology, particularly things that I think I have resources on, I always, uh, I actually have to go to this database and do this like search function. I've made a database of all my books so that I can actually find books on and journals on different topics and stuff. Anyway, so every once in a while, I'm sort of looking at my bookshelf, and I'm like, you know what, maybe I should just make an episode where I just pull a book off the shelf, and I just talk about it. So I thought I would do that today, and I hope to make this kind of a little series. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. So this book that, I, that caught my eye was, it is a book by Bernard Swartz and John Flowers, published 2010, called how to Fail as Therapists, second edition, 50 plus ways to lose or damage your patients. So I just thought I'd just start from the beginning. So the first chapter is called Failing to Recognize Our Limitations as Therapists. Absolutely. I think a, a common thing, particularly when people are first starting out, is this, well, I guess there's, there's two, there's two pitfalls, two types of pitfalls. One is, is that when therapists are first starting out, they're so insecure and they're trying so hard to act like they're not an imposter that they kind of overgeneralize by saying that 
they're that they're good at everything or they're they feel so bad about being incompetent in something they have a really hard time admitting to a client when they're un, when they're incompetent and so I talk with a lot of supervisees and trainees about this and I'm just you know if if a client comes up to you and is just like um you know, what do you know about psychology or, you know, how, how am I supposed to be able to trust you? You're just starting or you're an intern or you're so young. Like the, the, one of the best responses you can have to that is, yeah, you might be right. I might not be able to help you, but I'm going to give it my best shot. And I've learned a lot and I'm going to talk with my supervisor and I'm going to consult and I'm going to, I'm going to work real hard to, to see what I can do to help you with this. Just admit, just admit, just say, you know what? I don't know. And as I age and become more mature and less immature and more confident, I find myself admitting to things that I just have no idea about because I, it's okay. It's okay that I don't know about things. Like whenever I dip into politics on this podcast, I'm, I hope I say every time, it's not my area. I, I'm not a scholar in politics. I'm not a scholar in history. I'm a scholar in psychology and psychotherapy and marriage and family therapy, but I, I really am just a layperson when it comes to politics. And a true scholar in politics or history or, I don't know, whatever related fields there are to that, when they hear me talk, I'm sure they're, they're like, oh, wow, that guy is a lay that lays, that guy is a layperson. That person doesn't know what they're talking about. That, that person is saying typical things that typical people say. And I am 100% fine with that partially because I have the confidence in my area. I, you know, I'm, I'm very confident in my knowledge of psychology and psychotherapy. And so maybe that gives me this sort of baseline self-esteem that I can say, well, I don't, I don't know. I don't know much about anything else <laughs> is the thing. So, uh, so there's that, but I guess more specifically when, you know, students are starting out in the field the clients might ask them about medical things or legal things or, um, you know, financial things. And a lot of therapists will just find themselves thinking, oh, is this something I'm supposed to know about? Because they're, they're frequently in a, in a state where they feel like they don't know what they're talking about uh, when it comes to psychotherapy. And so they just have this easy trigger of just like, well, just fake like you know what you're talking about. And so, so yeah, that's, that's an important thing to wrestle with as a trainee. As you gain experience, though, there's, this, there's, a, there's another bias and another cognitive mistake that happens where I've seen people who are very good at their job. They're very good in psychology or very good in psychotherapy. And because of that, they think they're good at everything. They're very knowledgeable about this one topic. And then because of that self-esteem, they generalize that to everything and, and they think they know everything about everything. And that is, uh, can be very destructive, not only to clients, but also to themselves and to people around them. All right, let's go to number two here. Number two is ignoring client strengths, capabilities, and resources. Yes, authors Bernard and John, that's very astute of you. I agree. A lot of therapists will ignore clients' strengths and capabilities and resources. I, when I teach classes, I will have at some point an exercise where I ask uh, students or trainees to identify the strengths of their clients. And inevitably, they will come up very short. If I, if I ask them, you know, list all the problems you see in this family, they'll be writing forever. You know, I, I present a case or we watch a video or they do a role play. They can rattle off 
pages and pages of dysfunctions and problems in the family system or in the individual client. But when I ask them about strengths, they come up real short. They'll, they'll be looking at me like, huh, strengths? And they'll be staring at the page and they'll be like, huh, well, what? I, well, and some people will even say, I don't think this, I don't think this family has any strengths. And they're, and they're genuinely, that's genuinely how they think. In fact, I, I just did this exercise a few weeks ago and, and a student looked at me and said, I, I don't think this family has any strengths. And that's a failing of our field and a failing of our culture and a failing of our training programs. At the very least, students and trainees and people in the field should be able to list three to five strengths of any of their clients, even if they've only met with them briefly. But at at best, really, the list of strengths should be longer, more robust, more heartfelt than the list of problems. People have problems. I have problems, but I would like to think that I also have strengths. You know, I'm not just a ball of problems. You know, if my therapist saw me as just a ball of problems, that that one doesn't make me feel great. And two, just isn't accurate. It's just not an accurate way of looking at life. Plus, when you overlook strengths, you overlook you overlook opportunities as a therapist to capitalize on something. I often will ask students to identify how they how their clients love their family members and friends how how that person expresses warmth because that's an important aspect of life an important aspect of well-being and to know that is to know how to capitalize on it if you see people being very warm in in their eye contact then you want to you want to capitalize on that you want to encourage that some forms of therapy uh, postmodern they call them or solution focused narrative positive psychology solution oriented uh, therapies that's all that they do pcit all they do is look at strengths they don't even think about the problems they're just like okay you have a, you're bringing to me a problem like depression anxiety family conflict and all i'm going to do is focus on how you are succeeding and what your strengths are and by doing that, you will focus on your strengths and your uh, successes, and therefore you, the problem will fix itself because you will gravitate towards those things. We don't have to problem solve. We don't have to solve your problem. We just have to. We just have to point you in the successes that you already have. It's a very powerful form of therapy, and it's a very powerful mindset as a therapist. And so, uh, yeah, that's number two. All right, number three is failing to address client expectations about therapy. Yeah, another problem that I see as well. I when I'm working with supervisees, trainees, um, one of and even consultees who have been working in the field a long time, a very common question that I'll ask. Uh, so you know, someone will consult with me about a case. So they'll just be like, "So I need help with this case." So great. And then a, a very common scenario is they just they just start rattling off background, but for me. Uh, I will often feel sort of off kilter until I get an answer to the question, what does the client want from therapy exactly? Because I can, you know, if, if I just started telling you a case like, okay, let me, let me consult about a case. So I have this woman and she came from a poor family, but now she's rich and she is struggling with some alcohol use and occasional she's using cocaine 
and her relationships are kind of up and down and you know her her life is cluttered and she's she's late to appointments sometimes and i just don't really know what's going on so that's that's the kind of backgroundy stuff that i get but at, when i'm listening to that i'm just like what does this person want from therapy because if the person wants something like you know self actualization then that colors everything everything that i'm hearing in terms of the background whereas if the person is like they want to quit smoking or they want to quit their cocaine use then that's a complete that's a whole other mindset that i'm in when i'm listening to the consultation and sometimes when i ask the question to people they don't know the answer or they can't articulate it very quickly or they can't articulate it very well so i'll say Okay, so this client, you're 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 struggling with this client. You feel like things are going nowhere. You th- you feel like things are stuck. Okay, I get that. What do they want from therapy? And they'll and for some people they'll be like, oh, well, they want you know these three things. You know, like uh, th- this client wants to uh, process their divorce that they went through. This client is thinking about getting married and they're having trouble finding someone that they can. Uh, and they're they're confused about what that means. This person has PTSD and wants to recover. This person was you know their mother died and they are just really sad about that and they want to talk about it. Um, so some people will say stuff like that and I'll be like, okay, so now I now I know as a as a consultee and now you know as a therapist what to do. Whereas a lot of trainees, supervisees will just say, um, well, I think what they want is that and I'm like, you think, you know, if you don't know what someone wants, then you are lost. You are completely lost. If if you can't as a therapist quickly within, you know, half a second of thinking, rattle off, you know, one to three goals that the client has, then you're lost now. For some people, what, when they hear that, they're like, well, I'm humanistic or I'm psychodynamic and, and we don't re- we're not CBT. We don't have concrete goals. Yeah, I get that. But at the same time, as a humanistic psychodynamic person myself, I can still identify the gist of what a client wants, even if that goal is something like raise self-esteem or self-actualize or self-explore or, you know, figure out the narrative of their, of their life or you know, transition from early adult into midlife and what that means to them or what it means to to be a parent and how do they want to live the rest of their life. I can very, those are humanistic uh, goals. They're not CBT goals, but they're a goal. It's a goal. I can articulate it. And so uh, it's very important, Uh, not only for clarity in terms of your treatment, but also in terms of building the alliance with the client. If you don't know what the client wants from therapy or you can't articulate it very well, it's very likely that the client picks up on that somehow, that the client comes into therapy and is like, I don't really know why I'm here, or I really don't know if my therapist understands why I'm here. And that can be very upsetting, and it's one of the main uh, components of the working alliance that's been researched. The working alliance, if, if you've heard of it, is a very important factor in the prediction of good outcomes in therapy. The stronger the alliance, the stronger the outcomes, the more positive the outcomes. And the alliance it has three components. It has a agreement of goals. It has, that's one. Number two is an agreement on the tasks to reach those goals. And number three is a bond or an attachment. 
And again, if it's quitting smoking and the agreement on the task is to do CBT to reduce uh, the likelihood of smoking a cigarette, then that's that, you know, very sort of CBT language, you know, very uh, concrete. Or again, it could be psychodynamic. I want to, um, my goal is to explore how my childhood has affected my relationships today. And the task that we're going to do is we're going to meet once a week in individual therapy, and we're going to talk about my childhood and make connections to my current life. You know, that, that's, that's the alliance, and, and you, have to, you have to know that. Now, you might not formally talk about that with your clients, but like some of my clients that I work with, we haven't formally talked about that, but I'm very certain that both of us understand what the goals are and what the tasks are, even though we, have, we don't have a, a formal treatment plan. In private practice, you don't have to have a, a formal treatment plan that you've signed off on. You, you have to have a conversation about the, the quote-unquote treatment plan, but it can be pretty organic in, the, in that way, and it can evolve over every session. And so, um, so yeah, I agree with you, uh, Swartz and Flowers, about that one is failing. One of the, one of the 50 ways that uh, therapists fail is they fail to address the client expectations. Number four is ignoring the client's stage of change or commitment level. Oh, my God. I get chills just thinking about this one. I 100% agree. It's similar to the to the last one I talked about. So it is upsetting to me that people can graduate from master's and doctoral programs either never hearing the notion of a stage of change or having been exposed to it very little. Stage of change is one of the most important aspects to therapy, and it is rarely talked about in my experience. And here, basically, in a nutshell, this is what it's like, or this is the gist of the concept. When people come into therapy, even if they have a goal, like just as, let's just take they want to quit smoking, you still, just because they say, I want to quit smoking, you still don't know where they are in their stage of change unless you assess for that. And treatment is completely determined by how you, de- you know, what your determination is in, ter- in terms of stage of change. So when you have someone who wants to quit smoking, there's three stages, or you could say four stages. And there's various different stage configurations, but this is my simplified version. You have pre-contemplative, which means that you, you don't know you have a problem. So essentially, you're, you're ignorant of the problem. Uh, then you have contemplative, which is you know you have a problem, but you're not ready to act. Then you're in action phase, which means you're actually taking actions to change. And then the fourth phase is maintenance, where you've made the changes and you just have to maintain those changes. So a very easy, uh, and I think it might even come, this language and concept might even come out of the chemical dependency world, but it's very easy to use chemical dependency in this situation. So you have uh, pre-contemplative, someone is smoking cigarettes and they're like, you know, cigarettes are good for you. I'm fine. You know, I don't, I don't need to quit because um, I can quit at any time or whatever they say, you know, just sort of ignorant of the fact that they're, they're, they have a problem. Number And then uh, they transition from pre-contemplative. At some point, they go to contemplative. You know, at some point, they're like, oh, I don't really like smoking cigarettes, but I'm not really ready to quit yet. Or, geez, I wish I could quit, but uh, maybe next year. Or I'm going through a stressful time right now. I'll do it later. Or, you know, I don't know who to talk to about this. Or they might even be saying, 
it's impossible to quit. You know, they're, they're in that phase. So that, so this is pre con, this is contemplative. This is meaning, meaning that they're contemplating the problem only. They're not doing anything about it. The third phase is action. So this is when they actually throw away their cigarettes. They actually stop buying cigarettes. They actually reach out to their friends and say, don't offer me cigarettes. They might, you know, take a nicotine patch or something. You know, they're, they're taking actions. Now, they might not succeed right away because it's hard to, to quit smoking. Take it from me. But it's an action phase. They're doing something and they're taking action. And then the fourth phase is they've succeeded at their goal and they're, they're maintaining their success at the goal, which takes some effort. You can't just relax. You have to keep it up. And then eventually it becomes so automatic that you don't crave cigarettes at all. So in terms of other kinds of things in therapy, you have someone who is, say, borderline. And at pre-contemplative, they think everyone else is the problem. At contemplative, they're like, huh, I think maybe... I might have, I might overreact to things or I might take things too personally sometimes. Um, but, you know, I don't really know if there's any way to fix this. I don't know if therapy can even help or I'm too scared to go to a therapist. Uh, action phase is in therapy and trying hard to think straight in this, you know, in the state of, of uh, being stressed out and being triggered. And then maintenance is, um, you know, years later after a lot of recovery from trauma and a lot of uh, emotional regulation skills and a lot of perspective taking and a lot of support is maintaining the success. So pre-contemplative, contemplative action and maintenance. So when someone comes into therapy, if you don't have a very firm grasp of where they are in that progression, then you have no idea how to proceed. So a very important um, thing to know about this is the first three phases, because people rarely come into therapy in the fourth phase, right? And, that, and in fact, people rarely come into therapy in, in the action phase. Most often, people come into therapy at the pre-contemplative or the contemplative phase. So they come in, and uh, so teenagers might come in in the pre-contemplative phase, where they... Uh, their parents are like, he's smoking pot every day, he's flunking all his classes, he's staying out past curfew. And then you sit down with the teenager and you start talking with him and you're you're trying, you're like, okay, well, how are we going to fix this? And the teenager's like, well, I don't know, what what do you think we should do? And you're like, well, how about you sm stop smoking pot because you're getting in trouble a lot and it's, you know, it's rotting your brain. And the kid's like, um, well, okay. And you're like, okay, let's move forward with that. And then you find week in and week out that the kid keeps smoking pot and you're banging your head against the wall because you're just like, well, how we talked about this. How come he isn't, you know, quitting smoking? It's it's not good for him. It's getting him in trouble. Why is he not doing that? Well, the thing is, is that he's pre-contemplative. He doesn't think he has a problem with pot yet. So why are you talking with him about action phase items when he doesn't even think he has a problem yet? So if you think that, uh, this is something worth working on, then you have to, the first thing you have to do is get him or, you know, explore with him th uh, things where it gives him an opportunity to step forward and say, huh, maybe I have a problem. That until you get them to the contemplative phase, then there's, there's no sense in talking about contemplative phase issues or action phase issues. So that's just a, in a nutshell. 
uh, what I'm, you know. So another uh, thing, I guess, going to adults would be you, a couple comes in and they're fighting all the time and they sit down in your office and they're, they're fighting, they're highly conflictual, they're talking about divorce. And so you start to talk about communication skills and blah, 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 because you think that that's what they need. But you might find that that doesn't go over well. Why? Because they don't think they have a problem. Each member of that couple thinks it's the other person's fault. So even though they can admit that there's something wrong in Denmark, they don't agree that they themselves need to change. So they are pre-contemplative. Even though they're in your office as a couple, even though they're asking you for help, they are still pre-contemplative because they have not admitted, each of, that, each of the member of that couple, neither of them have admitted that they have a problem that they have to change. And so that's where you have to start. You have to start with like, okay, well, uh, we have to start with uh, helping them to realize that they are responsible for the problem that each of them is responsible for, you know, roughly half of, of the responsibility of the problem. And until they can admit that, then there's no sense working on communication skills because if you work on communication skills with a pre-contemplative couple, they're just going to be saying, well, I don't need to work on communication skills. The other pre- person needs to be working on communication skills. They're both going to be saying that and they won't get anywhere. Okay, number five Failing to inspect the client's previous experience in psychotherapy. Yeah, I, I don't think this is a huge one, but yeah, I, I think it's something that many therapists will overlook, and it is a treasure trove of information, particularly with difficult clients. When you have difficult clients, understanding how they managed previous ther- therapists is a very good information. You know, like if you are talking with a client and they're like, Every therapist I've worked with in the past has been an asshole. So that's good information because you're like, okay, well, what's the chance that I am going to be not an asshole? And what's the chance that actually every single therapist they were with was an asshole? I mean, it's possible. But at the same time, it, it gives you an idea of like, okay, what mistake did all those other therapists commit that I need to avoid? You know, if I just proceed normally... Might I also run into a relationship problem where this client will walk away thinking I'm an asshole? What do I need to watch out for? What new approach do I need to take? You might, and what I suggest to people is just just flat out ask the client. Okay, so every other therapist you've worked with has been an asshole. Now I'm worried I'm going to be an asshole because uh, you know I'll, I'll make some sort of mistake. Help me not make that mistake. What do what do I need to do? You know, coach me on this. Help me out. Um, that's kind of a bad way of putting it. But anyway, I hope you get my uh, the understanding. Um, yeah, so make sure you understand previous experience of psychotherapy. Again, particularly if the client is uh, quote-unquote difficult. Number six is failing to explain the therapist's expectations regarding the therapeutic process. Failing to explain the therapist's expectations regarding the therapeutic process. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, it's similar to just under, you know, having the alliance. So just making sure that you articulate to the client what's happening in therapy. I talk a lot with trainees about this, and it's it's a problem for trainees and, and for many people even practicing for a while because they haven't had any role models teach them how to have this kind of conversation. 
the the ability to quickly explain what therapy is to clients is a skill that is only developed with practice. When I first started out, I didn't know how to do it. But now, after lots of practice and you know training others how to do it, and I don't, maybe even the podcast has helped, I now know how to very quickly explain the therapeutic process to clients. Like one particular uh, long explanation that needs to be done sometimes is trauma therapy. So I'll walk people through. I'll say like, okay, you have PTSD in all likelihood, it seems. And we, in order to heal you from your PTSD, which is absolutely possible, and I've absolutely had success with that, we need to make sure we follow very discrete steps. And those steps are, number one, you have to understand what all the steps are and agree to progressing through the steps. So until you know what the steps are and agree to start going through the steps, then we can't go to step two. Step two is understanding your emotional state, which might take a while. And really, really understanding at any given moment, you can rate how distressed you are in particular, how distressed you are on a scale from one to 10. And you're very confident in that you know exactly all the different, you know, you know the difference between a five and a six. You know the difference between a two and a four. That's very important. Number Step number three is knowing how to lower your number of distress. This can take a long time. You know, when you're a six, what exactly can you do? What set of five to 10 things can you do that have been proven by you actually doing them that can reduce your number from a six to a three or from an eight to a five? You know, we will have to experiment. And, and when we're at stage three, you will go out into the world and, you know, triggers will happen and you'll use these skills and you'll come back in and you'll say, these three skills worked in this way and these skills worked kind of in this other way. And these skills are good in these situations and these skills are good in another situation. And, and, and once we establish that you have a very you know, skilled approach and effective approach to reducing your distress that you know very well, you're very intimate with your distress level, then we can go on to stage four, which is uh, talking about the trauma in therapy. And while you were talking about the trauma, we will talk about it in a very slow pace. The first time we talk about it, it will be uh, just a little bit. We'll just, we'll talk about it for five minutes. Then we'll check in with your distress level. We'll use our skills and then you'll go, you'll go, you'll leave the office and we'll see the effect because sometimes just five minutes of talking about the trauma will cause a tremendous amount of distress after the session and we'll just pace it out. And the idea goes is that a little bit of distress is good, like a four out of 10 is actually good and will sustain that that level and you'll you'll tell yourself everything's okay and you're safe and by exposing yourself you're habituating yourself to the trauma and your body will recover from PTSD it's the same as if you were terrified of spiders and we uh, gave you a very you know a slow progression like you look at a spider on the computer screen you know it can't actually hurt you but even just looking at a picture of a spider makes you feel distressed you keep looking at that spider and eventually your body habituates to that spider on the computer screen so much so that every time after that you look at a spider on a computer screen and it doesn't bother you anymore. But you have to habituate to it. Your body has to get used to it. 
And then we take it to the next level with a spider. You might actually look at a spider that's moving in a video because that makes you even more anxious or a particular kind of spider. And then you habituate to that. And we know how to monitor your distress. We know how to lower your distress level. And it, it's, you know, it, it's the same when it comes to habituating to your traumatic memories. We have to very slowly and incrementally ramp up the intensity of the memory. And over time, if, you, if we do, if we follow these steps, and it's unclear how long each step is going to take, but we'll go at a good pace, but at a, but at a safe pace. But when I do this process with people, they do recover from PTSD and they no longer have any symptoms. I have worked with people before when they go through the steps, no more symptoms at the end, zero PTSD symptoms, which means that not only are they less anxious, less depressed, less dissociative, but also higher well-being, better relationships, freer to move in the world without worrying about being triggered, better, you know, better in, especially if the trauma is related to relationships, more fulfilling relationships, more trust in others. And so, so that's what I say to people as I'm explaining what therapy is in that process. There are other kinds of processes, you know, someone says, I want to self-actualize or I want to figure out who I am and what I am. And so I, you know, I have a way of explaining it's shorter than the, the trauma therapy narrative, but it's a, um, it's a way of explaining to people, look, here's what therapy is and here's what it does. Now, if you, if you, if I went back 20 years ago, when I first started as a therapist, one, I didn't even know the process of therapy because I hadn't done it yet. Even if someone told me what it was, I didn't retain it because it didn't have any visceral reality to me. Um, or uh, no one ever told me. It's possible that no one actually did explain it to me because it's not a common thing that trainees will get exposed to. And it's something that I try to expose trainees too. I try to, I role play it, you know, you know, cause they'll be like, I'm trying to convince this client that therapy is a good thing. And I'm like, well, what's their issue? And then I just rattle off a way of saying something to a client. And as an example of just like, here's one example that you could adopt if you wanted to, or you could, you know, modify, but this is the sort of vein you want to be in when you're uh, talking with people. Now we're never trying to harangue clients into therapy, but you should be able to sell therapy, right? You should be able to sell it. You should be able to say therapy is a good thing and it's worth it. And if you can't do that, then you have to develop that skill. You know, we're not salespeople. We're not trying to convince people to do something that they don't want to do. We're we're trying to help people understand the power of what therapy can be. And when a client asks you for that justification, uh, don't shy away from that and don't get scared of that. Say, you know what? That client deserves a justification for me. I am the I am the provider of a service, and if I can't justify it, then what am I doing here? So the fact that you can't justify it means that you just haven't been trained. You haven't done it enough. You don't know how to do that. So you need to be able to sell it. You need to be able to say therapy is worth it because blah, 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 blah. Now, what you also say is it might not work for you and I might not do a good job, but I'm going to give it my best shot. And, and my best guess is, is that this will help in the following ways. If, if we do X, Y, and Z again, CBT people are very good at this because uh, it lends CBT lends itself to that, you know, cognitive therapy, behavioral therapy really lends itself to this kind of language. Humanistic psychodynamic people tend to be worse at it because 
one, they shun that kind of talk, which I think is a bad idea. You know, like I once had a therapist, my very first therapist when I was in college. I don't know exactly if this happened, but because it was a long time ago, but I do remember. So I would come into therapy and I'd sit down and I'd talk about my life. And the whole time I'm thinking, eventually he's going to fix me, you know, because I didn't really know what therapy was. I was like, eventually he's going to help me out. And then, I don't know, five, 10 sessions in, I just sort of stopped and I was just like, so have you heard enough information yet? Because I, I'm, you know, what are you, what are you going to do? Are you going to do something to me? Are you going to help? You're going to help me in some way? And he's, you know, said something to a very psychoanalytic response of, you know, well, what would you like me to help you with? Or isn't it interesting that you want me to help you with that or something like that? And I find that to be complete bullshit. You're providing a service. You need to be able to answer that fucking question. You know, you need to be able to be like, uh, okay, I'm, I'm glad you're asking. Um, even if the response is, the thing that I can provide you is a place where you can talk without any worry of criticism or judgment or even commentary. And I just want to provide a space for you to express yourself. And to tell you the truth, I think it'd be a bad idea if I offered an opinion about it because people have been doing that to you your whole life and I'm going to be here listening. So that's me justifying therapy. That That is me providing a conceptualization of how therapy helps. If you can't say something like that, then you need to like, you know, figure out how to say those sorts of things. They're legitimate things, you know, but you need to be able to articulate it. One, because clients deserve that. And two, because it will help you know what you're doing in therapy. Because again, when a client asks you what you're doing in therapy, if you can't answer that question, then what the hell are you doing? <laughs> you know, if you can't justify therapy to your clients, then why are you even there? Now, what I would argue is that you were actually doing good things, but you just don't know how to articulate it. Or you have a vague sense of like, well, I, I feel like I feel like listening kind of helps. I don't know. Like you need to have a way of actually like putting a stake in the ground and saying, this is what I'm doing for you. And this is what I think it's going to, and this is how I think it's going to help you. And you have this issue that you're working on with me. And I think my approach to this will help you in this way. I don't know if it's going to help you, but I, it's my best guess. Okay. Number seven is, and again, this book is called how to fail as a therapist by Swartz and flowers. Number seven is failing to prepare clients for a variety of emotions that therapy can evoke. Yeah, I guess so. I, I don't really find this to be that much of a problem. I know that it's a common refrain in a disclosure statement to talk about how clients should understand that there's going to be a lot of emotions and blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I, I've, I don't think I've ever had a situation where this was a problem, where clients had intense emotions that um, were unhelpful or we didn't expect to happen. I, I tend to be fairly, I don't know, accepting of big emotions and uh, have found that there's uh, very rarely any kind of problem with that. The exception to that, of course, is delving into people's traumas too early and having them dissociate or be triggered. And uh, then that quote unquote emotionality can be a problem. But I don't, I don't really find that one to be an issue. Number eight is failing to enhance client expectations of success. Uh, I think I already talked about that one. Number nine, failing to assess psychological reactants. Yeah, I could see that. 
Uh, number 10, underutilizing clinical assessment instruments. Now, this is interesting. So in our field, if you don't know, most of the competence is uh, uh, understood or uh, it's believed that psychologists are the only ones who are, and psychiatrists, I suppose, are the only ones who are competent to use most of the psychological instruments, meaning the assessment uh, measures like, uh, you know, an MMPI or a um, MCMI or that kind of thing. Um, however, there are some instruments that are really quite simple to use, like a Beck depre- depression inventory or an anxiety inventory. And at the master's level, without much education about instruments, you could prob- probably administer those fine and understand and use them competently. So, um, so yeah, they're saying that therapists fail to use clinical instruments. Um, yeah, I, I find that instruments can be really helpful, uh, particularly in certain situations, like in the aforementioned clients that I've worked with with PTSD. I will usually use a PTSD measure to monitor symptoms so that I can know how we're doing. So if... For so a common scenario will be they'll come into therapy. I'll give them the measure and say you know they don't they don't use this rating system, but say they're at like a a seventy percentile, uh, you know, out of and hundred is like the most symptomology of PTSD. And so then what I'm trying to do is by the end of therapy get them down to zero, right, or as close to zero as possible, which I've actually seen before with these measures. I've seen people go from seventy percent to zero percent. Um, with treatment. But another thing, so that helps us to evaluate whether or not you've succeeded. But another thing is to uh, show to the clients that you've, that they've succeeded, that uh, when the, you know, you can actually show them the two measures and say, look, look what you scored the first time. And now look what you're scoring now. If this isn't proof that you've worked really hard in therapy, I don't know what is. The other uh, benefit is you can actually monitor throughout treatment. So you know, uh, a month in, I'll administer the instrument again. And let's say they go from 70% to 80%. Well, that gives me an idea of just like, oh, you know, maybe therapy is going too fast. Maybe we're triggering too much here, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. Number 11 is failing to challenge client misdiagnoses. Oh, self client self-diagnoses, self, self-misdiagnoses, failing to challenge how they're misdiagnosing themselves. Okay. I don't know if that's a big deal. Number 12, failing to assess for the possibility of organic or medical conditions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Therapists, you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So when you are a psychotherapist, everything looks like you can solve it with psychotherapy. There are some things that are absolutely um, better addressed in other helping professions, namely the medical profession, erectile dysfunction, for example, sometimes it's a medical cause, uh, sleep problems, depression can be better treated biologically. There's, you know, debate as to how much of it is quote unquote biological and how much of it is quote unquote psychological. And of course there's no real barrier between those two things, but anyway, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I find that some therapists, um, are good at that, and some therapists aren't. Number 13 is failing to understand how our assumptions affect therapeutic practices. Absolutely. If you've listened to me talk on this podcast, you know that I'm big on this idea of 
understanding the culture you come from, including the psychotherapeutic culture you come from, and how that affects your the way you see therapy. Number 14 is emphasizing technique over relationship building. Absolutely. Again, if you've listened to me on this podcast, you know that I rail about how we overemphasize technique or theoretical orientation when we really should be emphasizing relationship building, which is essentially a psychodynamic humanistic uh, perspective. 15, failing to communicate sufficient, sufficient empathy and other signs of support. Yeah. Um, I find that most of the therapists I work with are pretty good with empathy, but certainly there are some therapists that aren't very good at it. 16, believing that empathy and unconditional positive regard means liking your client. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a big difference between, so when you really, when I, when I first learned about Rogers and you know, person-centered therapy, client-centered therapy, I misinterpreted it as essentially just liking your client. You just like them, you prefer them or something. But the more I got into it and, you know, continually returning to the well of Rogers and reading his work, watching him, blah, 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 I started realizing, oh, it's deeper than that. It, it's, it's deeper. It's it, unconditional positive regard, uh, empathy. These things are, are deeper than that. And then after I did my dissertation, it was a phenomenological study, I realized how deep it actually can go. It's really deep. Rogers and empathy, unconditional positive regard, phenomenology is so deep. The ability to, or the action for me as a therapist, when I am sitting with a client, to put aside as best I can my assumptions and really listen to what someone is saying to me and really demonstrate that I am really listening and that I am with them and that I don't have an agenda and I'm just following where they're going can be profoundly therapeutic for people. I find that most people in therapy, if not everyone, at least half of what will help them is just that, is phenomenological listening. And it's not just listening, and it's not just liking them, and it's not just being curious. It's embodying in your soul a curiosity and a non-judgmental stance and a real curiosity for the other person's experience. You really want to know, you know, wow, you know, I had a rough day at work the other day. Wow, you know, what happened? Well, you know, I had this thing with with my boss and my boss was, um, you know, like giving me shit about something and it made me feel real bad. So in that instance, a non-phenomenological person might go in the direction of, well, let's talk about assertiveness training or let's talk about your perspective or what could you do to uh, stand up for yourself? These aren't bad modes, but they often to clients come across like oversimplification of just like, oh, you know, when, when you're having trouble at work and you tell someone about it and all they have to say to you is like, well, maybe you should just be assertive. That can be very discounting to the overall gist of what the person is saying to you. They, people don't necessarily come to therapy for skills. Uh, they, they might, but they often aren't really in my experience. What they're coming to therapy is for the one fucking person in their life who doesn't actually try to solve their problems. And 
is really interested in their experience. It's incredibly validating and comforting and correcting emotionally experience for someone to pay attention to you in that way. It's something that parents do when they have young children. And when we don't get enough of that as kids, we need it as adults. We need it even more. Um, but I, I would I would argue that no matter how good your parenting was when you were growing up, you still need it throughout your life. And it's just not a very common thing for people to give each other in you know family relationships. And so that's why therapists exist, in my view. So, so they're like, yeah, I, you know, I went to work and things were tough and I, um, you know, I, my boss was giving me shit and I didn't know what to say. So I just sort of took it and I just, I don't know, I just really hate my boss. And so in this instance, you're just like, wow, what did that feel like? And they're like, huh? Well, what, you know, when your boss was yelling at you, what, what was that like for you? Oh, well, yeah, it felt bad. I felt shamed. I felt demoralized. It felt hurt. Okay. Wow. You know, that, that, you know, I can see that. I could see how someone would feel that way. How do you feel right now telling me about this? Well, I don't know. It feels good to get it off my chest. Um, uh, I, I feel like you're really listening to me, you know, like that kind of stuff can be incredibly powerful to people. And one of the worst phrases that I will pounce on when I hear a trainee say it is, I feel like I'm just listening, they'll say. You know, they'll be like, I don't know, I feel like I'm not really doing anything with this client. I feel like all I'm doing is I'm just listening. And I'm like, just listening? Do you know how important listening is to helping people with their problems? Do you know how healing listening is? It is one of the most powerful therapeutic actions you could possibly fucking do. You're not just listening. You are listening, my friend, you know, especially if you're embodying a phenomenological stance, which is not easy because it's hard to what they call bracket your expectations and your biases. Um, okay, where are we here? Number 17, failing to elicit client feedback on the alliance. Right. So I talked about the working alliance earlier, and it's important for therapists to continually ask the clients. So I just want to check in. How do you feel about how therapy is going? So asking people about that question has, has two main functions. One is, is that you're actually, you can actually get good feedback. They might be like, well, honestly... I kind of feel like we're in a rut and I feel like we talk about the same things every time. Or honestly, I kind of feel like you talk too much <laughs> and, and I'm, I, I'm not really here to listen to you talk as a therapist. Um, so getting good feedback is, is he- very helpful, right? Because it helps you to provide a service that's helpful. But the other thing is, is that research shows that just asking that question can improve outcomes. Just asking the question how did that session go? Or how do you think therapy is going will increase outcomes, which is weird, right? Even without, even if the client doesn't say anything back to you, just asking the question, it, outcomes get better, you know, overall when they study this sort of thing. Why is that? Well, you know, it's hard to say because we'd have to, you know, we can't get inside people's brains. The uh, notion, the speculation is that by asking that question, you're proving to the client that you care enough and that improves the relationship and the relationship will enhance outcomes. Uh, number 18, ignoring the client's verbal and nonverbal feedback. Yeah, same sort of problem. 19, responding defensively to negative client feedback. Oh my God. Yeah, that's the worst. Number 20, setting goals unilaterally. 
So um, not collaborating with your client, yeah. Uh, all these have to do, 21 and 22 have to do with collaborating. Uh, 23, disregarding the data, sure. 24, attending the messenger, not the message. Attending the messenger, not the message. I wonder what that one means. Let me read that one. Okay, so I just read it, and it's a little bit confusing, but essentially what they're saying here is that some clinicians can be very charismatic and might convince us uh, of things that aren't necessarily true. Um, so there's there's that one. Uh, number 25 is achieving theoretical rigor mortis. So, you know, just stagnating as a clinician. 26, over-identifying with the client. Yeah, makes sense. 27, allowing in a Allowing inappropriate levels of physical intimacy. Yeah, duh. 28, having boundaries that are too rigid. Yeah, also duh. 29, making inappropriate levels of therapist self-disclosure. So I don't like this language, actually, inappropriate. I hear it a lot in my university. Students will be like, so what's the appropriate level? Or they'll be like, well, that feels inappropriate. And I'll be like, what do you mean by appropriate or inappropriate? You know, because appropriate can have a number of different meanings. And one of its main meanings is uh, moralistically or socially speaking. You know, like for a girl to wear a, you know, bikini to high school, you know, a, a, a ninth grader girl, to for her to wear a, a bikini to high school is quote-unquote inappropriate, Right. There's a certain, you know, we, we associate appropriateness with like um, how things look or, you know, what is sort of commonly understood as like the right way to behave. But in therapy, there are no such things as that. I mean, if, certainly we have the standard of care. But when it comes to helping people, there's, there's no appropriate way to help somebody. There is only helpful ways to help people and unhelpful ways. And so I always correct you know, students, I'll say, by appropriate, do you mean helpful? And by inappropriate, do you mean unhelpful? So, you know, another way to say this is making unhelpful levels of therapist self-disclosure. So that's a, that's a very different, it's not just semantic, it's very different. So if you have, so, you know, to say there are appropriate levels of self-disclosure, what that implies is there's a universal threshold upon which you should not self-disclose beyond, right? And what that says is there's rules, like you shouldn't self-disclose that you've used marijuana in the past. And that was actually something that was told to me early in my early years, that you, if a client asks you, like if a teenager client who's smoking marijuana all the time, if they ask you if you've smoked marijuana in the past, it's inappropriate for you to self-disclose about that, and you should deflect from that, from that question. Or you should answer it by saying you can't answer that question. Or just lie and say you haven't, you haven't done it, even if you have. Obviously, things have changed since then. But the, the, when you say the word appropriate, it implies a threshold. Whereas helpful, I think, implies, hopefully, that it depends on the person, right? So for one person, any level of, self, of self-disclosure is not helpful to them because they are, you know, of a certain personality type that makes them extremely vulnerable to um, being very curious about their life, about your life as a therapist and fixated on you. And therefore, you need to leave as much as your life out of the therapy office as possible. Whereas another client 
might really need you to self-disclose in order for them to feel normalized and unshamed and stuff. Someone comes in who is incredibly shameful about the fact that they suffer from narcissistic personality. And you, since you suffer from a little bit of narcissistic personality, self-disclose that you have a little bit of narcissistic personality and you have made other people suffer because of your narcissistic traits. But it's not anything to be ashamed of. People develop narcissistic personality in response to issues in their childhood. They don't develop it out of choice. It's a coping skill to attachment uh, insecurity. That's all that it is. It's not some. It's not a moral failing on the person, uh, you know, on their part. Borderline the same thing, you know. And so self-disclosing. A, you know, that's a pretty big self-disclosure to say that you suffer from a personality disorder or that you have traits of it. Uh, to self-disclose that, that's a big deal. You might not even tell your family about that. You might, you know, this, this, you're, you tell this client this information, you might have only told one or two other people in your life uh, that's, that self-disclosure, and yet that would help the client. So it's about, I mean, not all the time, but it, it, you could make an argument given the way I painted the picture that it would help the client. So it's about helpful levels of, of self-disclosure, not appropriate levels. So I disagree with the way they're writing that. Number 30 is failing to set boundaries for out-of-session client therapist contact. Sure. 31, developing an out-of-session activity unilaterally. So, you know, uh, homework to clients without collaborating with the client. 32, failing to adequately prepare clients for the assignment. Oh, so this is all assignment-based. 33, the same thing. Uh, 34 through 37, let's see. Failing to prepare the client for attitude change. 35, relying on passive learning strategies. I think we're getting into the weeds here a little bit. Let's see if I can sort of skip forward here. Uh, termination problems, medication problems, uh, burnout, therapist burnout uh, issues, working with children, uh, human resiliency. So, okay, yeah, we, we're getting into the kind of the weeds. I, I would say the first, you know, the first 10-ish are probably the most universal. So, good book, How to Fail as a Therapist, second edition, Bernard Swartz, John Flowers, uh, published 2010. Uh, good little book. It, it It's short. Each chapter is only like a page or two, and they provide strategies for how to avoid the error. So I don't know. I feel like maybe every th- starting therapist should should have this book. I don't know, or, or at least know of it. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Um, let me thank some patrons. Let's go to the middle of the pack. So this would be about, I don't know, a year and a half ago-ish. We have Hallie from Monticello, Florida. I didn't know there was a Monticello, Florida. We have Deanna. I know Deanna. She's active on Patreon. Gibsonville, North Carolina. Taylor from Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Helen from Florida. Wow, we have a lot of Florida, Carolinas here. Uh, Oh, we have Italy here. We have Lara from Parma, Italy. That's exciting. Matthew from San Diego. Ashley from Tampa, Florida. We have Liz from Indianapolis, Tasha, oh, I know Tasha, of course, from Warrington, Oregon, right across the way from, um, oh, God, what's the name of the Astoria where they shot uh, Goonies? Tasha came to our live show last month. Nicholas from Philly, 
Thank you so much for being a patron of the podcast. You guys are awesome. And that does it for that episode. Thanks for joining me. Let me know what you think. Contact at psychologyinseattle.com or comment on all the various different places. Take care of yourself because you deserve it. <laughs>